trust, and how at such times this trust is a civic duty and not evidence of one's credulity. They forget, in short, that there has ever been a category of human experience called the enemy. That, before 9-11, was what had happened to us. The very concept of the enemy had been banished from our moral and political vocabulary. An enemy was just a friend we hadn't done enough for yet or perhaps there had been a misunderstanding or an oversight on our part, something that we could correct. Our first task, therefore, is to try to grasp what the concept of the enemy really means. The enemy is someone who is willing to die in order to kill you. And while it is true that the enemy always hates us for a reason, it is his reason and not ours. He does not hate us for our faults any more than for our virtues, He sees a different world from ours, and in the world he sees, we are his enemy. This is hard for us to comprehend, but we must if we are to grasp what the concept of the enemy means. For Himmler, the Jewish children whom he ordered the SS to murder were the enemy because they would grow up to avenge the deaths of their fathers, who had been the enemy before them. We have killed their parents, they will want to kill our children. Hence, we have no choice but to kill them first. The fact that they had done nothing themselves and were incapable of doing anything themselves was irrelevant. This is how mankind has always thought of the enemy, as the one who, if you do not kill him first, will sooner or later kill you. And those who see the world in this way see it very differently from those who do not. This is the major fact of our time. We are caught in the midst of a conflict between those for whom the category of the enemy is essential to their way of organizing all human experience, and those who have banished even the idea of the enemy from both public discourse and even their innermost thoughts. But those who abhor thinking of the world through the category of the enemy must still be prepared to think about the category of the enemy. That is, even if you refuse to think of anyone else as an enemy, you must acknowledge that there are people who do in fact think this way. Yet even this minimal step is a step that many of our leading intellectuals refuse to take, despite the revelation that occurred on 9-11. They want to see 9-11 as a means to an end, and not an end in itself. But 9-11 was an end in itself, and that is where we must begin. Why do they hate us? They hate us because we are their enemy. This was the revelation that came to Theodore Herzl when, as a young newspaper man, he had been sent to cover the Dreyfus trial in Paris during the 1890s. Herzl had been born in Budapest, a part of that great polyglot cosmopolitan Austro-Hungarian empire in which Jews had done so remarkably well. As a student, he had thought that the solution to the Jewish question lay in complete assimilation of Jews, or what his biographer Alex Bein called their disappearance without a trace in the ocean of the surrounding world. But the reaction of the French crowds to the condemnation of Colonel Dreyfus shattered this illusion. The crowds had shouted, Death to the Jews! But why, Herzl asked himself, did they want death to all Jews, rather than death to the one Jew whom they believed guilty of treason. Herzl realized that even in France, one of the most liberal and civilized countries in the world, 
assimilated Jews were still hated for being Jews, and this meant that Herzl too was still hated for being a Jew. Not for having grandparents who were Jews, but for being a Jew himself. This meant that being a Jew had nothing to do with how Herzl defined himself, but everything to do with how his enemy defined him. If his enemy wished to hate him because he was a Jew, he would, and Herzl's own self-definition mattered to him not at all, a truth that was echoed by Karl Luger, the variantly anti-Semitic demagogue who was elected mayor of Vienna in 1895, one year after Dreyfus's arrest, and who was reputed to have said, I decide who is or is not a Jew. This disillusionment spelled the end of Herzl's belief in the Enlightenment dream that all men could one day embrace in the spirit of universal cosmopolitanism, and ultimately turned Herzl from the path of assimilation to Zionism. It is the enemy who defines us as his enemy, and in making this definition he changes us, and changes us whether we like it or not. We cannot be the same after we have been defined as an enemy as we were before. That is why those who uphold the values of the Enlightenment so often refuse to recognize that those who are trying to kill them are their enemy. They hope that by pretending that the enemy is simply misguided or misunderstood or politically immature, he will cease to be an enemy. This is an illusion. To see the enemy as someone who is merely an awkward negotiator or sadly lacking in savoir-faire and diplomatic aplomb is perverse. It shows contempt for the depth and sincerity of his convictions, a terrible mistake to make when you are dealing with someone who wants you dead. We are the enemy of those who murdered us on 9-11. And if you are the enemy, then you have an enemy. When you recognize it, this fact must change everything about the way you see the world. Once someone else sees you as the enemy, then you must yourself deal with this category of human experience, which is why societies that have enemies are radically different from societies that do not. A society that lacks an enemy does not need to worry about how to defend itself against him. It does not need to teach any of its children how to fight and how not to run when they are being attacked by men who want to kill them. It does not need to appoint a single man to make instant decisions that affect the well-being of the entire community, and it does not need to train the community to respond to his commands with unthinking obedience. But societies with enemies must do all of these things, and do them very well, or else they perish. Yet there is a problem with each of these various things that must be done to protect a society against its enemy. They are illiberal, and they are at odds with those values that express the highest that civilized life has to offer, tolerance, individual liberty, government by consensus rather than by fiat, and rational cooperation. Thus, it is not unnatural for those who prize such values to be reluctant to acknowledge the existence of an enemy serious enough to require illiberal measures, and they are correct to feel this way. Those who argue that war is not the answer are almost invariably right, and if civilization can be said to inhere in any one single characteristic more conspicuously than in any other, it must certainly be in the preference for peaceful over violent methods of resolving conflict. 
To be sure, civilization consists in more than this, but this more is always dependent on the pre-reflective certainty that the people you must deal with will not resort to force or threat or intimidation when they are dealing with you. The first duty of all civilization is to create pockets of peaceableness in which violence is not used as a means of obtaining one's objective. The second duty is to defend these pockets against those who try to disrupt their peace, either from within or from without. Yet the values that bring peace are the opposite values from those that promote military prowess, and this poses a riddle that very few societies have been able to solve, and then only fitfully. If you have managed to create your own pocket of peace and its inseparable companion, prosperity, how will you keep those who envy you your prosperity from destroying your peace? There is only one way. You must fight back. If your enemy insists on a war to the finish, then you have no choice but to fight such a war. It is your enemy and not you who decides what is a matter of life and death. Once you have accepted this reality, however, you are faced with the problem of how to fight. If your enemy is composed of men who will stop at nothing, who are willing to die and to kill, then you must find men to fight on your side who are willing to do the same. Only those who have mastered ruthlessness can defend their society from the ruthlessness of others. This was the plight faced by the peasants in Kurosawa's masterpiece The Seven Samurai, and by the dirt farmers in the American remake, The Magnificent Seven. Men and women who knew nothing of battle, the impoverished peasants of a remote village found themselves at the mercy of a gang of ruthless bandits, who each year came at harvest to steal.